Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Paul Sankey with Mazuo is with us, part of an acclaimed team years ago with Adam Siminski and company, and now at Mazuo doing granular work on oil. Paul, just, just simply to your research note for this weekend into Monday, what part of this collapse are you most focused on? Well, we're obviously following the uh, end of the lockdown, but as you know, some of the data, for example, out of Japan is headed in the wrong direction completely. But as you know, the overall problem here is a demand one. And generally, analysts, as you also know, Tom, focus far too much on the supply side. The fact is that demand here is is so low relative to uh, anything we've previously seen before. It's just a major, major problem managing the market. That's why we've seen negative prices. It's a physical challenge to manage the market. And uh, that's manifesting itself very clearly in the tape. Paul, are we going to see negative uh, prices again on the June contract? It depends if people are dumb enough to get caught again. Uh, I think once you do go into that negative situation, where you know you've got to get out for, for at any price in order to avoid taking delivery of the crude, you could notionally go to any kind of a price you know sort of day before. I think what happened here wasn't so much the USO; it was more uh, CTAs, commodity trade advisors, who have to get out the day before settlement. They're not allowed to hold a physical position, and I think they were probably the sellers that caused us to go to minus forty. Once you break loose into that sort of territory, obviously you can go just about anywhere. It's not, if you like, a totally real price, but it's certainly uh, showing you that there's a massive problem with managing oil physically at the moment. I'll tread carefully here, really carefully if I can, but some people in the oil patch are obviously very unhappy with the price action. Continental Resources, Harold Hamm came out and asked for a probe into what he thinks suggests might be manipulation in the commodity market. Paul, it made me wonder, and I ask this question with the greatest respect for anyone working in the industry industry, but whether any of these owners of, say, Continental and others too, have had the reality check about what's about to happen and the support that they may or may not get from the government. Well, I think they were definitely slow to recognise the scale of the problem. Uh, I wouldn't single out any particular name for this. I think the industry in general couldn't quite believe what was happening. Uh, Obviously, it was an incredibly quick event. I mean, we went from sailing along fairly normal at $60 a barrel on the first of the year to a total and utter collapse within three months that occurred over the course of about two weeks. So I'm not surprised they they were caught short. However, you know, very early we were calling for negative prices, seeing how bad the problem would be. And I'm surprised, for example, someone like ConocoPhillips was quite slow to cut. I mean, they've got there now. But it was, it was not as quick a response as we expected from the industry, given the severity of the downturn. I think that we, we have been a bit negatively surprised by how slow it seems it's going to be to get out of this, unfortunately. Um, and, and that, you know, I'm sympathetic, obviously. It's a very difficult situation to manage. I think just to build on that point, there also was a probe by the CFTC into other trading uh, that was revealed yesterday by Bloomberg into possible manipulation. And there's a real question here. How much was some of the turmoil stemming from people with advanced knowledge of negotiations out of Russia, et cetera, versus a lack of an awareness of the reality or perhaps denial of the reality that still is being denied to this day? 
Well, you know, that's the crazy thing about the whole situation with with OPEC is that there's really no limitation on insider trading. I mean, I guess the CFTC can try and go after people, but the reality is this is an active cartel that's trying to manipulate the market. And also, Paul, just reflect on if for anyone that's ever been to Vienna or spoken to someone that's been to Vienna and watched how this meeting operates, the idea that some information slipped through the cracks I mean, come on. It doesn't surprise me at all. I would say that it's an active competition to be first to give the inside information. (laughs) Um, But, you know, that's the Wild West of the oil market. And, uh, you know, the regulator, I think, can yell at the Russians or the the Saudis or whoever. I mean, I'm not singling anyone out. It's it's across the board an active attempt to manipulate the market. I mean, it's quite open. Paul, if there ever was a force majeure, this is it. And I, I get that a sovereign wealth fund has to take its lumps and move on. What does Saudi Arabia do? What does Kuwait do? What does Nigeria do? How do they affect a force majeure in their core economy? Well, I think you can see clearly what's happening strategically through the Saudi official selling prices, right? And what we saw here, interestingly, I think very much post uh, the President Trump's uh, President Trump's intervention was that prices were raised by Saudi Arabia to the U.S. to reduce their sales to the U.S., but at the same time, they maintained a very aggressive pricing into Asia, which, by the way, the next day was uh, matched, if not uh, undercut, by Iraq, where I think one of the big tensions in the market today is the Saudi versus Iraq uh, stroke Iran um, price competition into Asia, which is very interesting. In terms of what they can actually do, that, that's been a major question, and we're seeing yeah. some very hot, you know, our, our, our take on the OPEC meeting was it's, it's you know very much rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic insofar as you're going to have to cut whether you like it or not. A, a very good example being Nigeria, Tom, where they've just simply been able to un, unable to sell their oil right. because there's no market NM, and that's obviously what we saw with the negative price as well. It's it's just an epic right. challenge because as you know the oil industry is efficient and it runs with relatively low inventory. This just surpasses any capacity to actually manage the oil short of shutting down production. The Saudis are in good shape in that regard because they're so heavily invested with such a sophisticated oil system that they can just turn a volume knob and change their uh, production. Others, you know, such as Nigeria and such as producers in the Permian, are going to find it more difficult uh, to do an orderly shutdown. What price does the cartel need? to break even on a fiscal basis, just the stability of their governments? What price do they need on a blended basis? Uh, That's fairly well reported by the IMF, Tom. So you'll see about 70 to 80 for Saudi, about 40 to 50 for Russia. 40 to 50, wow. I read uh, 150 for Algeria. Uh, you know, one of the one of the amusing conceptual con- things I've highlighted is what do you think the break-even is for the U.S. government? It's probably about $1,000 a barrel based on the current deficit. But, um, <laughs> but no, in, in all seriousness, there's an issue there. Of course, the Saudis will tell you they have the capacity to raise debt. Yeah. Um, you know, so they can run at a deficit, yeah. obviously. And as you know, their cash break-even yeah. is closer to $10 a barrel. They can get a loan but from it's going to be hugely destabilizing. I mean, this is going to really yeah. cause problems in many places, and I think Russia is probably the most interesting. Um, well. You know, in terms of, of the difficulties they're going to face financially, Iran obviously is another major candidate for serious problems. Let's do this again, Paul Sankey. Thank you so Thanks, much, Mazzuo. Just really, really appreciate it. Right now. 
we'd like to digress over to the equity market. John, Lisa, and I all looked at our 101Ks and said, let's get somebody on who can give us confidence forward. Savita Subramanian advises for the Bank of America, where she's head of equity and quantitative strategy as well. Savita, what is the quantitative observation right now? What is the mathiness right now you're focused on? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So I think there's a couple of things going on. I think from a stock perspective, what we're noticing is that the dispersion of stocks has actually increased to, to close to record levels. So what this means is that stocks are behaving very, very differently from one another, um, which suggests that there's um, increasing alpha to be made or increasing performance money to be made um, from stock selection rather than just buying or selling the market or buying or selling sectors or broad swabs of, um, of companies. So I think this is a different environment from what we've been in for, for you know, the bulk of this bull market where stocks have been very correlated and, um, and have behaved very similarly. Uh, so I think that's one trend that, that's very different. And then I think the second thing that's worth pointing out is that for equity investors, Time is actually the best arbitrage opportunity. And what I mean is if, if you just extend your time horizon on U.S. equities, there's a very unique characteristic of stocks where, you know, if you look at 10-year returns of U.S. stocks, they have very rarely been negative, less than 4% of the time, which compares very favorably to commodities, which, you know, commodities returns have been negative 40% of the time over 10-year periods. So I think that the key here is pick stocks and extend one's time horizon because obviously we're in a rough patch right now. Okay, let's say I do that. I extend the time horizon and then I ask you a pretty basic question. Do I need to pay attention to earnings season? You know, I think earnings season is important in the short term. And, and again, you know, I think that's what's driving the dispersion between stocks is that we're seeing, you know, even within consumer staples, some companies are doing better than others, depending on what their retail channels are. Um, you know, if you sell outside of the grocery store, you're not doing as well. If you sell in a grocery store, you're doing well. So I think that there are definitely, um, you know, kind of themes that, that we're seeing across earnings season. But, but, you know, I think that even earnings season is relatively opaque. So very few companies are actually offering forward guidance. In fact, the bulk of companies have just stopped talking about uh, earnings guidance for the year because we are in a little bit of a, um, you know, kind of a, an opaque period in terms of how long this business shutdown lasts, um, you know, kind of what, what the, what the uh, impact is going to be on earnings. So, you know, I think that earnings season is important in terms of picking stocks, but I, I actually don't see it as giving us much of a guide for how to navigate the next few, uh, few quarters. How much is buying stocks here a bet on the Federal Reserve backstopping the market? Yeah, I mean, I, I personally think that uh, that upside is in the market because we've essentially heard say they're going to buy almost anything. And, um, you know, they're, they're buying asset classes that they had previously never touched, like high-yield bonds. So I think that the, the good news from the Fed is in the stocks, and they've provided a backstop against a major liquidity meltdown. But from here, I think the, the real bet that we're making in, in buying or selling stocks is that the crisis is contained within, let's call it, the first half, and that this is a short, kind of a sharp economic recession with a, either a V or, a, you know, kind of a, a reasonable U-shaped recovery. 
Um, I don't think what's priced in is, uh, you know, a, a, a W-shaped recovery, if you will, or, you know, another um, onset of COVID-19 later in the year. Um, so I think that would be downside risk. And I also think that uh, the market is actually discounting at this point a relatively aggressive recovery on the, on the economic front. I mean, what worries me is that the P.E. ratio of the S&P 500 is right back up to its February peak levels because earnings have come down, but prices are still relatively high. Um, so I think that that's the risk is that, that a lot of the good policy news is likely to be in the market. Savita, I'm, I'm struggling to understand if everybody's looking past earnings and past the horrible and getting worse economic data. Do these jobless claims that we're all focused on matter? Yeah, I mean, I think employment has historically been a lagging indicator. So, you know, and I think that, again, we, we kind of uh, are forecasting a fairly dire uh, um, employment scenario. I think our economists are forecasting 10% unemployment by the end of the year. Um, so, so I think that uh, employment, while, while it does, you know, kind of point to near-term stresses, doesn't necessarily impact normalized earnings as much. I think what it does show, though, is that there might be a reticence amongst consumers coming out of this to, you know, return to buying big ticket items or even <clears throat> home home uh, home purchases, right. um, given that that consumer confidence has seen such an extreme shock. Savita, how does mid cap and small cap resolve itself? Is it through combinations? Yeah, Is it uh, how do they jumpstart? their entrepreneurial, you know, the pulse, the process? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. I think small caps, I mean, I think we will will be likely to see consolidations given how cheap small caps are today. I mean, the sector is trading at below recessionary levels, um, and the gap between large and small is the widest we've seen in, you know, in in multiple decades. So I think that this is is an environment where large companies can buy smaller cap uh, stocks for for a song, I think the real risk, though, for smaller companies is whether they survive this um, this downturn. Because, as you know, smaller companies are much more GDP sensitive. So, you know, large caps have a lot more, um, you know, kind of staying power. Uh, but I think that that's the risk for the overall asset. Well, are you are, are you predicting weather the storm? Are you predicting a roll-up phase? I mean, there was a period, what, 20 years ago where, you know, we rolled up the specialty chemical industry over three cups of coffee on a July weekend. I mean, is that what <laughs> yeah. we're heading for? I mean, I think we could see that. We could see more heavy M&A activity once we get a little bit more clarity on, on the length of this downturn. Um, but I think these large and small right now are just hoarding cash. They're not doing anything. They're suspending buybacks. You know, some of them are suspending dividends, and companies seem to be very, very conservative in terms of cash and capital allocation. But I think if we get to a, a point where there's a little bit more clarity on how long this all lasts and whether it's, you know, there's potential to, to contain this crisis, that's when you start to see the consolidation. But so I would be bullish on uh, on an M&A cycle um, yeah, sometime exactly. in the next 12 months. Savita, yep. thank you so much. Savita Subramanian with the Bank of America. Right now, the former president of the Minneapolis Fed at Rochester, Nariana Kachalakota, uh, joins us. Uh, Professor, I want to go right away to the mathiness of your work, and that is that so much of our belief in research is based on smooth curves, on glide paths, on models that are 
comfortable and at times some would even say elegant or beautiful. We've just had the mother of all jump conditions, exogenous shocks. How does that change your belief in models? Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me on. I think models are still uh, very useful for trying to organize your thinking about what your, your likely appropriate response is to, to, to economic conditions. You know, obviously, this was an event that uh, was not forecast by economists. But now, once we're in the, the event, I think that modeling and, uh, can help you with framing what, how to think about what should be done. And I, I think it's been helpful for uh, my former colleagues in the Federal Reserve as they, as they try, to, try to figure out what to do next. One thing that they have done is be incredibly aggressive. And for the most part, people have cheered them. American confidence in the Fed's leadership right now is the highest since a Greenspan era. If you take a look at the latest Gallup poll, I'm wondering, though, going forward about the the politicization of the Federal Reserve based on some of the fiscal stimulus type of efforts they've been doing. What's your expectation? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Lisa. I think that... um what we've seen in this recession, uh, and I'm going to call it that because I think that's where we're in, is that there's been a lot of coordination between Treasury and, and uh, the Fed and implicit coordination between Congress and the Fed. Um, so, for example, uh, the Fed has set up a, a facility whereby they're going to be willing to lend directly to, to corporations. That's basically they're using their ability to create government liabilities, money, uh, in order to uh, finance uh, a fiscal intervention by Congress. I suspect we're going to see a lot more of that as we go forward. Um, It's clear that the American public is comfortable with this. It's clear that Congress is comfortable with it. Um, It's clear the Fed is comfortable with it. What that's going to mean, I think, in terms of politicization, uh, you know, it's I, I think that's a good question. I, I, I worry about that, certainly. How do we get the genie back in the bottle? We asked Vice Chairman Clare to this question, and many others have been asked the same question. Down there, out there somewhere, I get. do you just let the debt run out, or, or do you find a way to actually do what many would say is responsible and just pull it in a little bit? I think that uh, it's very difficult to put the genie back in the bottle unless – people perceive a cost to, to having all this debt. Um, as long as interest rates remain low, as long as inflation remains low, yeah. I think that you're going to see Congress and the Fed continue to feel comfortable with, with, with expan- these kinds of expansionary programs. Professor, you could argue that if the Fed's balance sheet gets to $12 trillion in the near term, which isn't a crazy estimate, that it won't matter if borrowing costs remain low, to your point, and if everything just keeps chugging along, that they'll look like the heroes. So why would they become a more political body at that point? Oh, I think the issue is that what is the role of Fed in terms of fighting, fighting recessions? The traditional role for the Fed is simply... Uh, if recession comes along, we're going to cut interest rates. Uh, if we see inflation uh, on the horizon, we raise interest rates. That's a pretty simple technocratic position. Now I think the Fed is in the business of, okay, which kind of program should we be financing for Congress? Well, that's a, <laughs> that's a much more political kind of job. And I, I think the issue is whether or not we want a, a group of, as, as, as Americans, do we want a group of unelected technocrats to, to have, that, have that power. 
I just say right now, they're the heroes, but I, 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 I think that this is, uh, uh, creates risk for the institution uh, going down the road, certainly. Uh, that's, I, I wanted to go there. This is so important, Professor Kochelakota. Is the risk to the institution? What is your action plan for Chairman Powell now as a former member of the institution to maintain the integrity of the Fed? What does he need? Does he need to get out of the speaking circuit or does he need to, you know, do the Today Show? What, what's his best practice? Well, I don't think I need to give any advice to, to, uh, uh, to, to Chair Powell about, <laughs> about how to handle publicity. He's done a fantastic job, I think, in terms of communicating about what the Fed is doing, why it's doing it. Um, I think it, that's one of the most striking differences I see between where the Fed is today as opposed to where it was in 2008, where it was also doing, I think, things to save the U.S. economy but not communicating as effectively as, as Powell has done. Um, no, I think it's really this question that, that uh, you asked about, how do you get the genie back in the bottle? You can't do it in, in May of 2020, but I think it has to be some thinking what are our guidelines for using 13.3 going forward? You know, this, this uh, clause in the Federal Reserve Act that seems to say, well, the Fed can do anything it wants to as long as yeah. the Treasury Secretary signs on. <clears throat> yeah. This, is, this has been wonderful. Professor, thank you so much. Nariana Kachalakota, folks, the former president of the Minneapolis Fed and now at the University of Rochester. We want to continue our discussions now on what we're all experiencing with this pandemic. And to so many, that is the doctors and indeed the nurses on the front lines. I spoke today with Jason Farley. He's at Johns Hopkins University in their department of nursing. And the professor is truly expert on infectious diseases. Here is Professor Farley. Right now, the vaccine studies are looking at what we call phase one vaccine studies. These types of studies are really looking at the safety um, and whether or not we actually see a response. So does the immune system respond to the vaccine? So that's not testing efficacy, meaning is it effective at preventing the virus from occurring if we have the vaccine? So those studies come next. And really importantly, that's why we're continuing to project timelines of at least 12, if not 18 months um, um, away. Dr. Farley, the raging debate this morning is in your wheelhouse. You are one of the nation's experts on Staphylococcus aureus, methicillin, and all the resistances in hospitals. The arch fear of medical experts is a secondary bout of this virus down the road. Explain the likelihood and how it will demonstrate if we get a virus come September or December, or even into 2021? Yeah, certainly. Well, we're looking at um, estimates of antibody right now that are, that are emerging that suggest that 5% of the population, for example, the data out of Seattle and, and the Washington state that suggests that 5% of the population may have been exposed and recovered. So the first question, obviously, is does those antibodies <clears throat> be recovered from lead to any form of attenuation or protection in the future? The second question is, is if that's so, that still leaves 95% of the population who what we would say are immunologically naive, meaning no prior exposure and recovery. So in other words, if, if we roll back social distancing too fast, we continue to propagate virus in the community. That then subsequently leads us into the season of cold and flu, 
which is, you know, like you said, September and on, in the United States at least, and in, in the northern hemisphere, that, that timeline. Then we also get other respiratory viruses reemerging, such as influenza. And it complicates our scenario, as was mentioned by the CDC director, Robert Redfield, because then clinicians are seeing a patient with respiratory symptoms and scratching their head saying, well, is this flu? Is this coronavirus? Is this, you know, another problem with that becomes we know how to treat flu. Obviously, we know how to diagnose it. We know how to prevent complications in most circumstances, not all. Um, Yet transmission um, parameters and dynamics um, do affect the way we may respond. So, again, we're we're concerned about co-occurring respiratory viruses in the same season, which will complicate decision-making. And it's not exactly that we don't anticipate coronavirus to return during the fall. We absolutely expect a second wave of infection um, to occur. We've already seen it around the world in in various sites that have re-emerged. Jason Farley with Johns Hopkins University, their professor of nursing, just fascinating there on his wheelhouse, infectious disease as well. Turning our attention now to Washington, D.C. and the debate over immigration. The president, Donald Trump, signing an executive order just yesterday to temporarily curb the issuing of new green cards for would-be permanent residents in the United States. And, Tom, with the labor market heading the way it is, I imagine this is just the beginning. I would suggest the professionals I speak to on this are absolutely stunned at the action. They don't have a strong opinion about it, you know, the actual what we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, but they are stunned by uh, the action here. John Lieber joins us with Eurasia Group to uh, cover the territory here. John, just very simply, on immigration and the president's desire here, over six zero sixty days, how many American jobs will he protect in that time? Very few. I mean, I think this is not necessarily about protecting jobs immediately. I think this is more about setting up the dynamic and setting up the immigration issue to create a contrast with Joe Biden for the election in the fall. Immigration is basically shut down in the country. They're not processing visa applications. They're not processing green cards. There's exemptions in here for temporary workers. Um, They didn't cover the H-1B program. I mean, there's just a lot this order doesn't do. And it's only for 60 days. So at the end of those 60 days, you know, they got to look at it again and say, are we going to extend this or is this worth fighting for? So that's where we are. 61 days out, what would you suggest happens? Uh, I, I think that they're probably going to extend this. I think that the president, if you look at the groups that typically support immigration restrictions, they've been lukewarm on the president's announcement. Um, but I think the president also has a business constituency to think about and folks who need these immigrant workers and rely on them, especially in the agricultural sector. Um, but, you know, to the extent this is red meat for the political base, you've got to think that they're going to find a way to make this last longer than 60 days. And John, perhaps extend we're living the groups that are already there. John Lieber, I'm sorry. We're living this every day. They, they exempted medical workers, agriculture workers and radio presenters from London. <laughs> I think it's just great how they did that. I mean, for full John, transparency, just so the audience does know, this is a process I'm going through. So I won't be offering a judgment on this particular policy. Just as an observation, though, John. You can see how this is going to be a huge focal point ahead of 2020. 
A little bit later this morning, we'll have an extra $4.5 million jobless claims, 4.5 million jobless claims, according to the estimate. That would take us to near 25 million in five weeks. This is going to be a big debate. And I just wonder, John, from your perspective, because you've got to read the political tea leaves. This is how the president is setting himself up for November. Does he manage to bring the left with him? Do the left come in on this topic or do they go further the other way? I think if you look at Joe Biden's immigration plan, um, it's a lot like Barack Obama's immigration plan, but even more liberal. I mean, you think that you've got the possibility of um, you know, uh, amnesty for workers that are already here, the possibility of more workers coming in under the plan. So I think that where the Democratic Party is, is certainly far to the left of President Trump. But you're right. This is a sensitive issue. And, and in times of high unemployment, the issue, the issue of immigration is going to be politically charged. So I think the president president did this because he understands this is an issue that excites his voters. And, you know, they're fighting over the same voters in a couple of key battleground states in November. So, but, but where the Democratic Party is not where President Trump is, and they're going to have to oppose this or find some, you know, say there for some sensible policies that would allow, you know, immigrants to come in where needed or something like that. John, I was struck as I was researching this issue last night, I was struck by the pushback that President Trump is getting within the further right parts of the Republican Party, basically saying this doesn't go far enough by any stretch of the imagination, that if it is going to be extended, it would have to be increased and all of the exemptions render it basically toothless. Uh, How moderate is this on some levels within the framework of the Republican range of President Trump? I mean, the reality is that the greatest cure, if you, if you don't like immigration, the best cure for too many immigrants coming to your country is a high unemployment rate, because that's what draws people to this country. So you're going to see immigration numbers drop dramatically throughout the course of this year as the job market collapses. In terms of how moderate or extreme this proposal is, I mean, it, it's, you know, we don't usually ban green cards uh, for people. So I'd say it's a fairly extreme, but it's not nearly as far as some of his kind of principal organized supporters want to see. Which is why I think that going down the road, you know, this all came together pretty fast over the course of 48 hours. You may see this expanded in consultations with business leaders and heavily affected groups and, of course, the Trump campaign. John Lieber, thank you so much with your Razor Group today on this important political uh, issue. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.